Hello and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be looking at putting it all together number two. As with putting it all together number one, we're going to look at a series of speakers that have been on the podcast in a consecutive order and try and put together a pictorial or a framework of what we're really trying to get everyone to understand. What's the bottom line? What's really going on when it comes to women and children's health? And in this space, we're specifically looking mostly at women's health and how that translates into newborn health. So when we look at putting it all together for this second installment, we need to take stock in the beauty of learning from the past to understand the present and the future. The four-part series that we just went through brought us from the genesis of life with Dr. Kirsty Agard to the microbiome of baby with Dr. Tracy Shafazada to the anthropology of breastfeeding with Dr. E.A. Quinn and finally finishing up with maternal nutrition with Lily Nichols RDN. Each educator provided a different but important aspect of early life physiology to look for the optimal outcome for human babies. Optimal is always a tricky statement to make as everyone is so different in their genetics and biochemistry, making optimal a moving target. Not to mention that humans have different socioeconomic capabilities that may preclude being optimal at all. However, we know that certain truths exist and we must attempt to have a bullseye to aim for. That is what we call best health. So first, Maternal diet choices and exposures are critical to a newborn's health and vitality from day one. Second, we are an amalgam of our ancestors' microbiomes and genes, giving some clues to our risk. Third, missing beneficial microbes are now capable of being replaced for a better health outcome. Fourth, breastfeeding full stop is the most beneficial way to feed a newborn. And fifth, a whole foods, minimally processed diet is key to a healthy outcome for mom and her babe throughout pregnancy and life. Now, I will submit to you that nutrition and mental stress reduction should always be ground zero for every health discussion. For the purpose of this putting it all together, number two, I'm going to stick with the current order of speakers leaving nutrition last when it really in my mind is usually first. While you are conceiving of and producing your little beautiful baby, he or she is a 50% split amalgam of genes for mom and dad. While pregnant, mom's immune system loves the baby's genes that are hers, but not dad's genes. Therefore, mom's immune system has to go through a process of shifting away from targeting dad's foreign DNA by altering the function of her immune warriors to prevent a spontaneous abortion. If this occurs correctly, then you are born naturally. Mothers are active living creatures with their own load of bacteria in their intestines, on their skin, vagina, and placenta. These bacteria start the process of programming the newborn's innate, as well as the adaptive immune systems, in the placenta to know friendly bacteria from troublemakers or pathogens. When the infant is born, they hopefully slide through the vaginal canal and pick up more bacteria, only to immediately latch on to the breast and acquire yet more friends. This is what nature expects to happen. Now let's look at our first speaker, Dr. Agard, and her work with maternal diets and the human microbiota. 
Dr. Agard discussed the developmental origins of health and disease hypothesis, which encompasses the data that early and persistent maternal exposures can lead to adverse outcomes in her offspring, specifically obesity, metabolic disorders, cardiovascular disease, and behavioral outcomes. This occurs via changes in gene expression resulting from epigenomic events. The maternal microbiome, maternal nutrition, maternal stress, and toxin exposure all play critical roles in offspring health. The gut biome is profound but not completely understood metabolic immunological effects on human health. The maternal microbiome is fragile, dynamically shifting ecosystem that sets the infant's microbiome at birth and is shaped by many external forces. We now know that these microbial ecosystems have profound effects on health for all of us. We also know that the maternal infant's microbiota are critical for them to gain weight, have immune solvency, and protect against infection. We know that there are differences in the gut microbiota of mom during pregnancy between women with high or low gestational weight gain. The antecedent players involved in this process are being understood, but it appears that nutrition and stress are two of the most modifiable sources of health and risk. Dr. Agard noted that women on a high-fat diet will have an enrichment of Enterococcus and a relative depletion of Bacteroides, which is known symbiont that aids in the maturation of mucosal immunity. As in the normal neonatal meconium, the relative abundance of Bacteroides in infant stool at six weeks of age was inversely correlated with maternal fat intake during pregnancy. There are many other studies looking at the alteration of the composition of the microbiome in ancestral humans compared to modern industrialized humans, which invariably has led to immune dysregulation. The microbial makeup is still under investigation for optimal species variation for us, but suffice it to say that our current path is a negative trajectory in the United States. These bacteria matter tremendously because they are a major part of the critical process of teaching the immune system how to act. This is the key point. The child's immune system is actually programming itself to tolerate these bacteria and not to respond negatively. This is beginning of something we call tolerance. Tolerance is a key word because it means we are learning to tolerate things that are not problematical. There is a crosstalk between these microbes, specifically the bacteria, and our immune cells helping them differentiate pathogens from non-pathogens and ultimately self-tissue, us. If this process gets disrupted for any reason, tolerance can be broken, and this is thought to be one of the main breakpoints for the beginning of inflammation, allergy, and or autoimmune disease or dysfunction for the child. Thus, the microbes that exist within mom and subsequently her offspring matter a lot. We have established that the intestinal microbiome is loaded with bacteria that can work for us in synergy or against us in pathology. The choice on which fork in the road is taken and walk to disease or health is based on our decisions and those of our parents. I can tell you that the two common themes to early onset autoimmune disease in children are overexposure to antibiotics and chronic poor quality food consumption. Thus, it is critical that we give these children a head start in health by setting the table with a healthy microbiome via mom and her choices. 
As Dr. Agard has shown us, the maternal microbiome is determined by her mother's microbiome, which is determined by her mother's, and so on, coupled to each mother's independent lifestyle choices throughout their life. If a mother has a high burden of infection requiring antibiotics during her life tied to a modern processed diet, then the microbiome will reflect these realities. These newer, more dysbiotic microbiomes that are passed on to the child are what we believe to be ground zero for the massive increase in infant milk protein tolerance and later food allergy in general. I think of a case where a child had classic milk protein intolerance where they had issues with the casein protein or the curd of cheese or milk and maintained a diet full of dairy driving mucus production throughout her body in response to the immune-mediated casein reaction. This led to recurrent ear infections and sinus disease. By 10 years of age, this child had been on 15 treatment courses of antibiotics. The intestinal microbiome on culture testing was devoid of two major classes of intestinal bacteria. The RNA analysis showed dysbiosis, which is a dysfunctional pattern of bacteria that is working against the person. Without getting into the details, this could have all been avoided by simply avoiding dairy as a child, which would have dramatically eliminated the respiratory mucus that drove the bacterial infections, necessitating antibiotic therapy, which ultimately leads to dysbiosis and immune dysregulation and thus disease. This reality has been proven in animal models where antibiotic overuse drives autoimmunity and shows up repeatedly in humans as well. This leads us into Dr. Shafazada's podcast. Her group has isolated a missing microbe called Bifidobacter longum subspecies infantis, B. infantis, that is the only known microbe identified to date with the ability to digest all of the human milk oligosaccharides or milk sugars in breast milk. It is found abundantly in ancestral human populations, but not in most industrialized mothers. These microbes have genes that encode for 19 enzymes that have the ability to digest all of the HMOs or human milk oligosaccharides in mother's milk. This is very important as these sugar molecules are not capable of being digested by the infant. If the microbes do not break them down, they pass through the GI tract and, not, and are not utilized for the benefit of the infant. These HMOs, once metabolized, are a direct energy source for intestinal bacteria, which are a direct energy source for colonocytes, as well as immune priming for neonates. By serving as a decoy receptor for the opportunistic pathogens in the mucosal surface, we have benefits tremendously laid upon us by these bacteria. This is another critical piece of normal physiology. 15% of maternal energy goes to the production of these sugars, which are specified for microbial consumption. Thus, it would be tragic for mom to waste her energy to produce these sugars only for baby to poop them out undigested. For me, this again raises the question of how have we evolved with these microbes in a symbiotic way? To lose the ability to have this beneficial relationship because of our choices to use cesarean sections routinely and not just for emergency, coupled to excessive antibiotic exposure and poor quality nutritional intakes, leaving us at a major health disadvantage. It is akin to our skin color and vitamin D deficiency or skin cancer based on location of existence on the planet compared to where you are genetically supposed to find yourself. For example, if you have lighter skin color with less melanin, 
based on being ancestry from northern latitudes, but find yourself living in Florida, which is much hotter and with more intense sun, you will have increased risk for skin cancer based on the genetic skin mismatch. The reverse also holds where a person of darker skin living in Boston will struggle with vitamin D deficiency. Neither is useful for health as the mismatch of genetics environment are persistent. As we segue back to the microbes, many of the beneficial microbes of the microbiome are under attack from our modern lifestyle choices. As they, or the keystone beneficial species, die out, we suffer disease. We are hurting ourselves unknowingly in most cases as we find ourselves mismatched genetically and microbially from our current environment. Dr. Shafizada's group wrote in their 2021 cell paper by Henrik and colleagues, quote, mounting evidence indicates that the composition of the infant gut microbiome is critical to immunological development, particularly during the first three months of life, when aberrations in gut microbial composition are most influential in impacting the developing immune system. Indeed, multiple studies have emphasized how early gut microbiome dysbiosis, described as an overabundance of proteobacteria and loss of ecosystem function, is associated with both acute and chronic immune dysregulation, leading to common conditions such as colic, atopic wheeze, and allergy, and less common but serious immune-mediated disorders such as type 1 diabetes and Crohn's disease, end quote. It is also well known by the work of Patrice Connie that some bugs slip through the gut lining into the systemic circulation and travel throughout the body, triggering the immune system to become active. If they are friends, they prime natural tolerance. If they are pathogenic, they prime inflammation and disease. The baseline name for this condition is low-level endotoxemia, as it causes a chronic systemic inflammatory state that worsens all-cause illness. The root cause is the abnormal microbiome based on all of the antecedent risks that we have discussed to date. This abnormal microbiome, which lacks the correct enzymes to break down the breast milk, human milk oligosaccharides, or the few that are in formula, leads to less metabolites being released, which in turn reduces intestinal epithelial health. The epithelial health damage disrupts a critical barrier between the inside of the intestine where all of the food and bacteria reside from the immune reactive zones that lie underneath. The dysfunctional intestinal tube lining leads to permeability problems that we call leaky gut. The leak is unfortunately a breakpoint in the skin of the intestinal tube that allows the food and microbes to enter sacred and now scared immunological space. The end result is immune activation and inflammation, which we see of as allergy, autoimmunity, and chronic diseases over time. So knowing all of this so far, what is some of the to-do? Well, there's a direct link between our lifestyle choices, microbiome composition, disease morbidity, and finally COVID death risk, where 95 to 97%, depending on which study you read, of COVID deaths are related to issues with immune dysregulation based on comorbidities. So how at the beginning of life do we protect our microbiome from perturbation disease and now pandemic risk? Number one, Avoid all antibiotics, antacids, and non-steroidal and anti-inflammatory drugs where possible during pregnancy, during childbirth, and for your child afterwards, unless necessary. These drugs and many others adversely affect the health, healthy gut microbes of an infant and child. Two, eat a predominantly plant-based whole foods diet. This means shunning processed flour and sugary white foods. 
consuming fermented foods like kefir, kimchi, kombucha, yogurt, and sauerkraut are direct bacterial sources for the gut and are great. Avoid all refined and processed foods that are low-fiber, high-fat, and sugar bombs. These same foods drive insulin resistance, further exacerbating physiology. Avoid non-nutritive sweeteners like saccharin, aspartame, and sucralose, which promote the growth of unhealthy bacteria. Instead, use stevia, allulose, or monk fruit natural sweeteners. One caveat here is to chew gum with xylitol after meals to improve the microbial health of your mouth, which is the entrance to your whole GI tract. Four, avoid endocrine-disrupting chemicals, otherwise known as EDCs. Visit the Environmental Working Group, podcast number four, if I remember correctly, with uh, the president, Ken Cook of EWG. We discussed this. So www.ewg.org for a list of chemicals to avoid. Gold school with plain soap and vinegar as disinfectants. Targeted bleach for raw animal-based residues on the countertops in the kitchen could be useful. EDCs can be found in plastic eating vessels and drinking vessels, face makeups, creams, and many other everyday products. So avoid them. Five, consider taking high-quality probiotics in the range of 100 billion bugs. Use your Advi- uh, the advice of your provider to narrow down which one, how quality uh, is uh, made up in this ma- probiotic, is a different species number, what are you looking for, how many of the bacteria per species. There's a lot to be said here. Ask your provider. Six, eat local organic foods until we have definitive proof that Roundup or glyphosate and other chemicals in our food supply are truly safe. The early research on these chemicals in the microbiome are not encouraging. Seven, meditate and reduce stress daily. Get into a rhythm of daily gratitude and prayer to engender a mindset of happiness no matter where you find yourself or how much external stress is pushing on you. Avoid negativity in all its forms. Negative mindsets only promote stress and stagnation of spirit. Perspective is key. How are you looking at a situation? The situation is what it is. Are you looking at it from a positive perspective or are you looking at it from a negative perspective that will dramatically shape how you feel, your outcome, and your daily stress? Number eight, consider an elimination diet if you are suffering from chronic fatigue, gut bloating, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic headaches, or other symptoms. Removing trigger foods can stop food gut-induced inflammation that can damage the microbiome. Trials of one to two months off in offending food often answer the question, as your body will feel dramatically different if you have a food sensitivity or food intolerance. Eliminating gluten, dairy, corn, eggs, soy, tree nuts, peanuts, and shellfish accounts for most food reactions that are not anaphylactic and classified as allergy sensitivity. Never try elimination rechallenge diets with foods that cause anaphylactic symptoms or serious allergic symptoms like vomiting, wheezing, oral swelling, loss of blood pressure. Seek expert help with working with elimination diets. Consider taking a prebiotic supplement to enhance the growth of the good bacteria that you already have. They're great in smoothies and cold beverages. Prebiotics are mother's nature's mother nature's perfect bacterial food source. For example, breast milk has 8% prebiotic milk oligosaccharides present in it to feed the infant's gut microflora. Fiber from vegetables, fruits, and legumes are great sources of prebiotics. Number 10, exercise daily to a sweat. This enhances microbial quality and helps the body rid itself of toxins. 11. Get adequate sleep to reduce stress. 12. Aim for vaginal delivery every time. 
No scheduled cesarean sections unless medically indicated. 13. Breastfeed exclusively until 6 months. I recommend whole foods for your baby from 6 months on. No white refined foods. By whole, I don't mean the size of it. I mean how it's processed. 14. If you are really struggling with gut health, despite trying all of the above recommendations, find a functional integrative medicine physician or gastroenterologist that is versed in analyzing the microbiome for overgrowth, bad, ba bad bacteria, yeast, or other dysfunctions that may be causing your GI complaints. Treatment for these problems are very specific and complicated and have to be nuanced. 15. Finally, anything that you perceive as chronic stress is a real stressor for you. You must change the narrative in your mind. Accept the current reality until you can remove yourself from the stressor or mitigate it somehow. Jesus Christ and the philosopher Stoics understood this philosophy well. Turning the other cheek, forgiveness, boundaries, standing strong in the storm, whatever you want to call it, will help you maintain a reduced stress life. We will always have stress in our lives. It is our perception and reaction to them that dictates our physiologic outcome. Okay, let's transition here to further the discussion on what we've learned about gut health and the role of food and or probiotics over the last decade. So let's recap a little. The human intestinal microbiome is a phrase used to describe the microorganisms that exist symbiotically within our GI tract. The microbes are bacteria, viruses, fungi, and archaea, non-nucleated organisms. For millennia, we had no knowledge of their activity or function within our biology. Now we are finally touching the surface of understanding function. However, this is mostly only occurring with the bacterial microbes. We still know very little about the effects of viruses, archaea, and fungi within us. What are the known functions of the resident or non-pathogenic commensal intestinal bacteria? Here are the support that they provide us based on the current literature. One, immune balance and tolerance development. This turns out to be critical for allergy and autoimmune avoidance. There's a crosstalk between these microbes and our immune cells, helping to differentiate pathogens from non-pathogens and ultimately self tissue. Two, detoxification of foreign and endogenous chemicals. We are constantly under pressure from the toxic outside world, making this an important function for us. The microbes have the ability to break down these chemicals. Three, synthesis of vitamins. Necessary for biochemical cell signaling. B vitamins and vitamin K are made by resident gut bugs. Four, suppression of pathogenic bacteria. By controlling the intestinal real estate, commensal bacteria reduce the ability of pathogenic bacteria to thrive and promote intestinal disease. Five, promoting mucus development and gut lining health. Bacteria promote the production of mucus that offers layers of protection from foreign pathogens and proteins at the intestinal cell mucosal surface. Six, maintenance of glucose and fat metabolism. Bacteria involved in promoting the effective use and storage of sugars and fats, especially in pregnancy. They can promote or prevent obesity and inflammation depending on the bugs that thrive. Very important in the prevention of insulin resistance. Seven, provide neurological cell protection. Reduce neurologic diseases of all sorts. Translational studies are giving us a window into gut health control of brain function and disease. Eight, reduced oxidative stress. Decreased mitochondrial damage and cellular health. This is an emerging field of research that is going to be very important in all disease types. Nine, decreased inflammation. Maintaining healthy microbes associated with total body reductions in symptoms from inflammation. Ten, hormone function. Gut bacteria can modulate and metabolize our hormones, especially the sex-derived varieties like estrogen. Endocrine physiological changes can be 
the present as sex hormone irregularity or symptomatology. 11. Microbes produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate that are the direct food sources for our intestinal cells helping to preserve the health of the intestinal system's barriers and thus preventing leaky gut. 12. Microbes are dictating our responses to cancer drugs and other therapies, including vaccines. Obese individuals have a certain cluster of bacterial species that are associated with a poorer vaccine response and vaccination immune-related phenomena or side effects. So knowing all this, how do we focus on the best practices for lifestyle choices to keep the microbe most healthy? Principle among these is to breastfeed from day one. Dr. Quinn, E.A. Quinn, went deep discussing how diverse diets around the world are associated with quality outcomes and in children and their microbiomes. But what do we really know about this reality of breast milk, diet, and formula? Breast milk composition responds directly to maternal intake of essential nutrients, but is mildly related to maternal fat, protein, and sugar intake. Notably, there is some evidence for stronger links between macronutrient composition and the mother's chronic or early life experience. Similar principles likely apply to infant metabolic programming via maternal nutrients and hormones in breast milk. Macro and micronutrients involved in epigenetic programming at the maternal and infant level, making the choice of food type important to phenotypic outcome or how we look actually or metabolically. It is the amazing human-derived source of infant nutrition for the first many months of a child's life that begins metabolic solvency. Let's start by looking at infant and childhood disease reduction as a result of exclusive breastfeeding. One. Exclusive breastfeeding reduces the risk of illness from most forms of bacterial and viral disease in infancy. Two, there are reduced rates of sudden infant death syndrome by up to 30%. Three, 50% reduction in necrotizing enterocolitis, a life-threatening intestinal disease of preterm infants. Four, reduces hospitalization and readmission rates for preterm infants during their first year of life. Five, enhanced neurological and neurodevelopmental outcomes. Six, Infant mortality rates that are reduced by 21%. 7. Provides protection against the development of allergies, especially with a strong family history of allergic disease. 8. Reductions in inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, and other GI-related diseases. 9. Reductions in autoimmune diabetes and some forms of cancer. 10. Reduced metabolic diseases and excess weight gain. And there is much more, but we're going to stop there. For this list. Now, if we look at this whole situation and we said, okay, is there a drug or if there was a drug in the world that could do all of these things, wouldn't there be every single parent on this planet lining up to get this drug? I think the answer is yes. We see parents every day, unfortunately, in clinic and hospital choosing to use cow milk based or soy milk based formulas instead of breastfeeding when the apparent ability is clearly there. Is it a lack of knowledge, convenience, difficulty with breastfeeding, socioeconomic pressure-based systems, or some other reason? The answer is it really doesn't matter why the choice is made. We are not going to judge it so much as continue to do our job to counsel regarding the scientific truths of nursing human milk as opposed to formula. There is no comparison here, folks. It is very clear that breast milk is the answer and makes the most sense. But... Education is the most we can do to try and change this narrative for most parents. So an infant is gaining metabolic programming from mom via the breast milk. 
This is to say the child learns epigenetically and nutritionally from mother's milk what the outside world is going to look like. Is it going to be feast, famine, cold, warm? This is happening real time as mom consumes a certain local diet and experiences her world and has her worldview. These signaling mechanisms are critical to human adaptability and survival. Without these signals, I believe that non-breastfed children will lose out on the ability to have a more nuanced, adaptable approach to health. They are beholden to the constant macro and micronutrient makeup of the milk, as well as the slow research-based evolution of what is molecular in breast milk and thus added back to formula. This task is frankly impossible as human milk is dynamic with constant flux based on the child's need, environmental shifts, and host genetics. Formula can never, ever reach this functional state. It is, in a simple word, static. We are dynamic organisms, so thus, we have a significant mismatch. What do we know about the differences of these two milk types? Human milk is dynamic on a minute-to-minute and day-to-day basis, which is not to say so the same thing for formula. Human milk is plastic and capable of responding to external forces in the environment by the mammary gland's ability to change the level of hormones, macro and micronutrient makeup, and immune factors to give the infant a selective survival advantage in whatever environment the maternal child diet finds itself in. Formula has no ability for change. It is a static calorie source without any ability to follow the child's needs and also cannot alter immune function in a positive way. Human milk has two classes of proteins, casein and whey. The casein protein curdles in the stomach when acid mixes with it. Whey remains a solid in the stomach acid and is easier to digest. Breast milk is composed of 50-80% of whey protein depending on the state, excuse me, depending on the date postpartum. The whey casein ratio in human milk fluctuates between 70-30 and 80-20 in early lactation and decreased to 50-50 in late lactation. Thus, cow milk formulas are much higher in casein than human milk, making them harder to digest compared to human breast milk. We are seeing this play out in clinic all the time with children struggling with immunologically tolerating the casein protein. These these children present colicky and congested with loose green stools, reflux, and eczema of the skin. Removal of the dairy protein is curative. Other proteins present in breast milk include lactoferrin, lysozyme, which prevent the growth and colonization of pathogenic bacteria, which in turn reduces intestinal inflammation while also preventing illnesses. Beautiful thing. The maternal-derived IgA antibody inhibits bacterial growth while sitting inside the mucus layer of the mucosal surface of the gut. This is another method by which breast milk tries to manipulate the bacteria. These actions all have immune balancing effect to induce tolerance to normal proteins in food and the environment, which in turn prevents allergic and autoimmune disease types. One specific amino acid is also highlighted as a difference between milks, glutamine. Glutamine is the most abundant free amino acid and is important for providing ketoglutaric acid for the citric acid cycle which generates ATP, adenosine triphosphate, for energy. It acts also as a neurotransmitter in the brain and serves as a major energy substrate for intestinal epithelial cells to maintain a normal intestinal barrier function and reduce permeability. Glutamine is critical to prevent intestinal inflammation. Glutamine abundance varies from low and early stages as colostrum to two-fold log higher in the mid to late first year of life. Again, firma has a static amino acid profile that cannot adjust to the child's needs. Fats make up 4% of breast milk, of which 95% of that fat is made up of triglycerides, the storage form of fat. The other critical fat in the remaining percentage is the polyunsaturated fats known as PUFAs. They are linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid. 
the most important of which is the EPA, or eicosapentaenoic acid, and docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, which are precursor molecules for these things called resolvins and protectants, which are molecules that inside the body decrease inflammation broadly after an insult, especially in the brain we're finding out with relations to concussion and other head injuries. 80% of the brain's DHA is acquired from the 26th week of gestation until birth. Premature babies lack the enzymes to convert the PUFA diets to the DHA EPA, which poses a great risk for these babies. Mothers provide these fats during pregnancy and through breast milk, assuming that she herself has adequate stores. Thus, it is critical that premature infants receive some breast milk to prevent diseases like necrotizing or colitis from the dysbiosis that occurs. So what else do we know about breast milk? It provides over 220 milk oligosaccharides, otherwise known as HMOs. These are small sugars that are indigestible by human infants, but are digestible by the infant's intestinal microbes. This is an incredible evolutionary task, as we talked about earlier, for a mother to use her energy sources to make a food source, not for her baby, but for her baby's bacteria. That is roughly 15% of the composition. That's like you giving away $15 of every 100 you make for something that you don't think is gonna affect you directly. Now, we know it indirectly does affect you based on this science, but it's an interesting reality. The reason is very clear. There's a profound symbiosis between a human and an intestinal microbiome. As discussed in the podcast with Dr. Shafazada, the specific intestinal microbes that are present in the intestine will dictate which HMOs are metabolized and thus conferring health benefits to the child. Breast milk is loaded with diverse HMOs and are giving a child the best health outcomes. Formula has recently added back two HMOs, specifically one called 2FL, out of those 220 in order to meet the scientific health understanding of, hey, there's something in breast milk that's not a formula, it's added in. Thus, there's a lack of diversity in formula by the number of these HMOs that would feed different bugs. So unlikelihood is there's going to be a lack of diversity of the microbes. So it's only a matter of time until we learn more about all of the missing benefits of these other HMOs that are in breast milk that are not in formula. So at this point, I can go on for a while on the differences between breast milk and formula, but I can't do that. We don't have enough time in the day. So th this is not an exhaustive review, just it is helping us understand the disparate nature of formula and breast milk. There is a distinctive difference, and the lack of flux with formula as opposed to breast milk is critical. Science has clearly dictated that where and when possible, breastfeeding should be encouraged, supported, and promoted nationwide and, frankly, globally. So let's go again back to Dr. Quinn. It appears that minimally or non-processed, high-quality quali high diets are the key to effective breast milk and the downstream epigenetic program it gives to the child. These diets can be varied and diverse based on the region of the planet, yet still adaptive and functional. To me, it remains a problem of modern food processing and the negative epigenetic signals coupled to the disruption of the microbiome that comes to play in this diseased reality. Remember, back to podcast number three with Dr. Randy Jurdle, when we first learned that foods that contain natural methyl donors improve neonatal health outcomes, while the lack of these foods had the opposite effect. This epigenetic phenomenon played out in the agouti mouse model that has laid the framework for human understandings of food outcomes related to risk and reward. Therefore, here we sit, understanding that the maternal microbiome, the infant's microbiome, breast milk, and food all play huge roles in human outcome. This leads us directly to the final guest speaker, Lily Nichols, RDN. She's a nutritionist specializing in maternal health. She plays a crucial role in our understanding of the food types that promote 
health. Preparing the maternal vessel for pregnancy may be the single most important event in the development of a child. Quality maternal nutrition is the second key factor promoting the healthy state that allows for a pregnancy event to occur and sustain itself to term. Nutrition cannot be overstated here. A whole food, macronutrient-loaded, minimally processed, balanced diet is proven to reduce inflammation and decrease the risk of pregnancy problems, immune dysregulation, and dysfunctional neonatal events. In order to achieve this goal, starting a few years before a woman wants to conceive is prudent based on the reams of data related to the amount of time it takes to nutritionally reduce inflammation and rebalance the intestinal microflora to a beneficial state. In the journal Child Psychology and Psychiatry, Dr. Osterholm states, quote, Accumulating data from animal and human studies indicate that the prenatal environment dictates to a significant role the shaping of children's neurocognitive development. Clinical epidemiologic and basic science research suggests that two experiences relatively common in pregnancy, an unhealthy maternal diet, and psychosocial distress significantly affect children's future neurodevelopment, end quote. When we look at some of the individual data, we find that maternal malnutrition is highly associated with worse infant outcomes globally. In the British Medical Journal, Dr. Neovius looked at 1.2 million live births and found that, quote, risks of any major congenital malformation increased with maternal overweight and increased severity of obesity, end quote. By definition, these mothers are calorically overloaded but nutritionally deprived. The problem of maternal obesity while pregnant is at epidemic proportions. In 2014, seven years ago, according to the CDC, excuse me, CDC stat sheet, more than 50% of pregnant women were overweight or obese. Knowing the risks related to obesity, insulin resistance, and the standard American processed diet, what is, if there is one, the perfect maternal diet? If it does exist, is it a realistic ideal for us to be aiming for? So personally, what I think of the perfect diet for mothers to be, based on all the accumulated knowledge to date, I decidedly have to look backwards in time. The diets of the Blue Zones, or the Tsumane Indians, or other minimally processed ancestral, ancestral diets seem to possess the best of what is available for the mother-child diet. When exploring diets, we need to first look at the macronutrients and how they are functional in the pregnancy experience. If we attain the best quality macronutrients, then we will almost assuredly obtain the nutritional necessary micronutrients for cellular function. Let's look at protein. Like carbohydrates and fats, protein is necessary for growth and maintenance. It is a major macronutrient that is necessary for the building blocks of muscle, cell, signaling molecules, DNA formation, cellular transport, and so much more. Without adequate protein intake, these mechanisms begin to falter and the child's outcome may be compromised. The volumes necessary on a day-to-day basis are variable based on exercise, physiologic makeup, and stress. However, current recommendations are for pregnant women to get 1.1 grams per kilo or 0.5 grams per pound of protein per day in their diet although new research is pointing to slightly increased needs toward the third trimester. However, these recommendations appear to be low based on more research on the recommendations of Lily Nichols in our conversation. 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram seem to be more in line with best health. Reaching this goal is step one for a healthy diet based on our conversation. Assuming that a pregnant woman gets this adequate protein volume daily, what should the source or sources be? 
when looking for literature on which type of protein to eat during pregnancy, meat or vegetarian, there were crickets in cyberspace. At this point, we are left extrapolating from the epidemiologic data over the last century. I think that the human longevity data sets are likely the most useful in this position of extrapolation. Here again, I point to the data sets of Samane Indians and the Blue Zones. There are no references to pregnancy in these studies. The information presented is specifically related to coronary artery disease risk for the Samane Indians and mortality for the Blue Zones. The Tsumane Indians of Bolivia ate a diet that was only 14% protein and was made up of primarily vegetarian sources mixed with wild game meats and fish. This diet was associated with almost negligible heart disease risk and chronic inflammation. The Blue Zone's longevity data showed that there are many reasons that certain groups live long and healthy, but one key component was that the dietary influences of large volumes of vegetarian-based food spiked with wild game meats sparingly. The research of the esteemed journalist Michael Pollan was put into his book, In Defense of Food, The Eater's Manifesto, where he has concluded that a diet predominantly based on vegetarian sources is associated with the best health outcomes. Recent data points to evidence that wild game or grass-fed, pasture-raised meats are healthier than commercially grain-fed processed meats because of reduced inflammatory signaling molecules. Inflammation is the main driver risk for all diseases, remember. There is some evidence that pre-pregnant women that consume a lot of processed and red meats had higher risks of abnormal glucose metabolism and gestational diabetes likely related to inflammation post-consumption of poor quality animal meats and fats, which are coupled to poor quality carbohydrate diets. I am fully aware of the fact that this conclusion is not rooted in direct science as it relates specifically to pregnancy. However, it is surely related to the human condition. I believe that meat was always a part of the human diet and not associated with disease until humans alter the quality of the meat and began significantly to overconsume it with other poor quality foods. Globally, globally and epidemiologically, eating animal flesh sparingly seems to be associated with the best human health. Thus, I do not think it is a significant stretch to extrapolate this data to pregnancy and early childhood. The protein recommendations would be as follows. Eat 1.5 grams per kilo per day of protein. Number two, eat mostly vegetarian sources of protein, especially legumes like lentils, whole organic soy, or garbanzo beans. Three, eat wild-caught fish like salmon, sardines, mackerel, and herring. Four, eat wild, traditionally grass or naturally fed animal meats. This is most likely to be associated with the lowest inflammation risk. Think of meat as a condiment to accompany your meal. Five, eat pasture-raised, antibiotic-free chicken, duck, or quail eggs. Six, nuts and seeds have healthy volumes of protein, especially hemp and chia seeds. Seven, spirulina, a nutritional yeast added to smoothies and cooked dishes. Very useful. Eight, quinoa, amaranth, and teff are high-protein grains worth consuming when properly soaked and sprouted before use. Nine, if you are not dairy-sensitive, small amounts of fermented dairy, yogurt, and high-quality organic cheeses are loaded with protein. All right, carbohydrates, macronutrient number two. Carbohydrates are made up of sugars and starches. They are used as a major storage form of energy for cellular function. They are also involved in DNA, RNA, and coenzyme functions throughout the body. The majority of our diet is and should be made up of carbohydrates. Unfortunately, it is the place where many people struggle with their food choices, as here, are, here we find the many super tasty but unhealthy foods like soda, cake, white bread, chips, and much more. Conversely, healthy carbs like salad, leafy greens, carrots, apples, asparagus, and all the other whole vegetables and fruits should be the mainstay of the diet. 
When we consider carbohydrate intake during pregnancy, we have to remember that the female physiology changes throughout pregnancy. The system wants to enhance glucose production, storage, and transportation to the growing fetus and will maximize the use of ingested carbohydrates for the baby. As discussed earlier, the microbiome and metabolic pathways shift throughout pregnancy for the benefit of the child's growth. The recent data regarding mortality and carbohydrate consumption showed that the not too much and not too little approach seems to be the best for human mortality avoidance at roughly 50 to 55% of the daily calorie intake being carbohydrates. The key with carbohydrates in pregnancy or life in general boils down simply to quality first and quantity second. A quality carbohydrate is one that is high in fiber and phytonutrients. Broccoli is a great example, whereas bread is not. We can also look at something called the glycemic index and glycemic load. Simply stating, the glycemic index is a measure and a number given to how fast a food type turns to glucose in the bloodstream on a scale of 1 to 100. Glycemic load, on the other hand, is a measure of that glycemic index multiplied by the volume of carbohydrate consumed in grams. This is a more accurate way of predicting the response to the given sugar, as each person will have a different response given their response to sugars in general. This is a complicated issue, and it is more complicated by the fact that human intestinal microbiomes can change the absorption and the metabolism of carbohydrates in general. Understanding this concept is critical to discerning the effect of mom and baby. It would be amazingly useful for a mother to have a continuous glucose monitor on for a few weeks to assess her specific response, her N of 1 response, to certain carbohydrates to minimize hyperinsulinemia and the risk of gestational diabetes downstream. What we now know is that pregnant women and their offspring will overgrow if they are overconsuming highly glycemic foods like potatoes, white bread, chips, cakes, sugar beverages, and much more. When a pregnant mother consumes a diet loaded with standard American highly processed glycemic foods like bread, pasta chips, cookies, and general fast food, she will have increased insulin levels in her bloodstream, which acts as a growth hormone for her, for her baby, while increasing fat deposition and weight gain in herself. Insulin sensitivity will alter negatively the, um, based on this diet that is persistently highly glycemic. This ultimately can become gestational diabetes mellitus or frank diabetes mellitus. Switching to a low glycemic diet positively affects the weight and health metrics of a child. According to the recommended dietary allowance for pregnant women, carbohydrate consumption should be around 175 grams per day, or roughly 3.8 grams per kilo for the average 120-pound woman. So if we wrap this all up as a carbohydrate wrap-up, what to do? One, consume a whole foods diet that is based on vegetables and fruits primarily. We want lots of phytonutrients and fiber in the maternal diet. The more colorful and varied the foods are, the better the phytonutrient makeup. Two, high-quality whole grains like oats, buckwheat, quinoa, amaranth, and teff are excellent fiber-based carbohydrates. Soak them, drain, and cook for best outcome. Three, severely limit the intake of refined carbohydrates or any kind of uh, white or wheat bread, pasta, chips, cakes, cookies. Also limit refined potato and rice foods. Rice is a special category now for pregnant women and children as it contains a lot of arsenic from the soil. Four, learn which foods spike blood sugar the most from the list and aim to limit their intake. Five, eat about 50 to 60% of your daily macronutrient intake as carbohydrates. Six, aim for 25 or preferably 40 grams of fiber every day. Trying to get high volumes of fiber in your diet is very, very beneficial to the microbiome and human health in general. Switching to our third major category, fats. This is the macronutrient that is profoundly used as our major storage form of energy. 
Fats provide for other vital functions inside the body, including organ insulation, cell membrane fluidity, and storage site for toxins until the body has the ability to metabolize and clear them. Fats are a very important part of the human diet and have been subject to some vilification over the last 50 years because of questionable science quality that ushered in an era of low-fat foods in order to protect against heart disease. This unfortunately produced a whole supply of sugar, salt, and flour-laden foods to replace the flavorful fats that disappeared from the market. While well-intentioned, the end result of these changes to the American food supply has been associated with worsening of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease nationally. Pregnancy is unique metabolic time for women as the physiologic changes are rapid and very different from the pre-pregnancy state. The demands for fat are higher and fat has become misunderstood by the general populace. In order to understand this, we need to break fats down into three types, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and saturated. Each, each type is important and they are each distinguished from their other group by a slight change in chemical structure. Then we can try and draw conclusions on what is best for mom with regard to fat after we understand these three. So start with monounsaturated fats. These are found in olives, avocados, sunflower seeds, nuts, canola oil. They are the least controversial and a significant part of the heart and pancreas healthy Mediterranean diet. The intake of olive oil in particular continues to be associated with better health outcomes, especially for cardiovascular disease. There are significant studies in animal models related to reduced inflammation in pregnancy related to the monounsaturated fat consumption. Polyunsaturated fat, PUFAs, are very important and broken up into two subgroups, omega-3 and omega-6. The omega-3 fat type is found predominantly in cold water oily fish like sardines, mackerel, and salmon, as well as flax seeds and walnuts. The omega-6 variety is found in seeds, vegetables, and their oils. Examples are oils from corn, soy, nuts, seeds, and etc. The omega-3 variety contains the fatty acids DHA and EPA that we talked about earlier that are critical for immune and brain function for mom and baby. The infant's brain cells membranes are significantly made up of DHA, which is obtained entirely through the placenta. Mom's dietary omega-3 intake dictates this fat deposition for her babe. This has been found to be so critical that omega-3 fats are now in all formulas for newborns and often recommended to pregnant mothers. The omega-6 variety is also necessary, but has the effect on the body in a pro-inflammatory way, which is great if you are ill or have an injury, but not great if you have diabetes or asthma. The real problem with omega-6 fats is thought to be that we get way too many of them in highly processed foods. The end result of this overconsumption appears to be increased inflammation and disease risk. This is hotly debated with research on both sides of the fence. The truth with polyunsaturated fats is likely at the balance point. We historically ate much less omega-6 variety and more omega-3 variety and likely rarely in combination with refined carbohydrates. With the advent of processed vegetable oils and their addition to many foods, the ratio has swung toward the omega-6 side, potentially creating a problem in most individuals. I think that rebalancing this ratio makes prudent sense to reduce the abundance of immune inflammatory chemicals in circulation. Saturated fats are found in animal products like red meats, dairy, palm, and coconut oils. They are currently the topic of much debate regarding their health and safety. One camp completely believes that they are unhealthy in promoting heart disease and other issues, while another camp disagrees and believes that these fats are good and necessary in moderation. As with most things, the answer is likely in the middle somewhere. Unfortunately, when researching saturated fats of pregnancy, I could not find any data worth sharing. The general human health data noted that some reviews have come out showing that replacing saturated fat with omega-6 fats has a heart-healthy effect. Others have shown no difference to mortality, heart disease, and diabetes risk. 
Yet again, I'm frustrated a little bit with a lack of quality science to answer these questions in general, let alone for pregnancy or infancy. But we are left extrapolating backwards from the general population data. Regarding saturated fat, I believe that it comes down to volume. It is highly unlikely that these animal fats are inherently bad for us. If we look back again at ancestral diets, they did consume saturated fats, but in very small volumes infrequently, and that was a dietary pattern that seemed to be associated with the greatest longevity. There is not even clear evidence as to the percentage of fat necessary per day for pregnancy. Ranges are all over the place from 10 to 25%. What we do know is that fats are a necessary major macronutrient that pregnant women need in their diet. The omega-3 variety from fish seems to have the most critical function to play in the infant's brain health. Having a balanced intake of fats leaning towards monounsaturated fats like olive oil makes epidemiologic sense. Saturated fats are likely good in moderation. The to-do for the maternal diet. Okay, number one, consume fats daily as high-quality, whole-unprocessed foods. Vegetables, olives, coconut, avocados, nuts, ghee, or clarified butter, and seeds are great fat sources. Two, aim for high-quality monounsaturated fats from olives and olive oil to put on salads and in dishes, as the data is pretty clear that this food stuff is very healthy. Three, omega-3 fats are very important during pregnancy. Eat wild-caught, oily, cold-water fish like salmon, mackerel, sardines, and trout. Flax seeds, chia seeds, and walnuts are also reasonable sources depending on their fads to gene makeup. Four, look for grass-fed meats for a better fatty acid profile when you do eat red meat. Try to limit it to a few times a month. Five, limit the intake of saturated fats as animal products as the data is leaning toward less than more. Plant-based saturated fats from coconut and dark chocolate are healthy in moderation. Six, I do not think that large volumes of vegetables are good for us, especially when they are combined with refined carbohydrates. Limit or better yet avoid all processed foods as they are the most likely source of excessive pro-inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids. These food sources come primarily from chips, fried foods, desert, desserts, and many foods produced in rapid di dining fast food restaurants. Eight. Live by Michael Pollan's ideal of if you cannot pronounce an ingredient or there are more than five ingredients, reconsider the food for consumption. Finally, let us take a quick look at insulin resistance. Overconsuming fats is causing insulin to not trigger the signal for the production of a glucose transporter to allow glucose, sugar, to enter it into the muscle and the liver cell to be stored as glycogen and or burned as fuel. This triggers the evolutionarily beneficial fat production storage system within us. Furthering this dysfunction, the combination of excess sugar and fat ingested simultaneously has provided a nutrient gradient with glucose levels rising in the blood, forcing the pancreas to pump out more insulin, which in turn forces the liver to convert the excess sugar into fatty acids, which are packaged in lipoproteins and transport all over to our body as fat cells throughout the body, driving obesity, furthering insulin resistance, diabetes, and heart disease through inflammatory immune system-related events. Thus, we are left with the excesses of our choices, damaging our most vital organs once the immune system gets involved. The other part of the insulin resistance puzzle is that the more you move in theory and in study, the more calories you will be able to burn to generate adenosine triphosphate or ATP, and therefore you will need more GLUT4 transporters to go into the cell surface to allow glucose into the muscle cell for burning and movement. This process is unrelated to food ingestion as the exercise-induced GLUT4 transporter will be produced regardless of your diet. Movement is a direct antidote for insulin resistance, and the converse is true. When we choose to sit all day long while we eat like a king or queen, we promote fat storage and further insulin resistance, both of which have significant downstream effects that are metabolically unnecessary.
healthy. The end result of all these activities is that over time, a longer period of time but still time, the pancreas tries to keep up with the calorie ingestion by producing ever more insulin to shove the sugar into the fat cells for storage. The persistent insulin resistance forces the blood sugar's directional path towards fat. Eventually, the pancreas cannot keep up with the sugar volume and we have elevated blood sugars. This is the point at which you are labeled a diabetic or a gestational diabetic. After finishing this podcast, go to the Insulin Resistance Podcast from this summer for a detailed understanding of the major risk for disease, that is refined carbohydrate coupled to fats, dilemma. The topic of the ideal diet has been thoroughly covered in the books Nourish Your Tribe by Nicole Magrita or Real Food for Pregnancy by Lily Nichols. For more detailed understanding, I highly encourage you to read both of these books. So, Putting it all together, number two, is supposed to help us all understand the actual beginnings of life as we should see it from the best foot forward view for the best outcome for mom and baby through the lens of the microbiome, nutritional sources, bacteria, how they respond to us symbiotically, and how all of this in concert paints a picture that is healthy. We can look at this from many different angles, but the angle that always makes the most sense is the upstream effect. And for me, each speaker, expert, was giving us a different view into the lens of what this is, but it really all starts at the beginning with the basics of lifestyle medicine, stress reduction, a healthy diet, adequate sleep, adequate exercise and movement, avoidance of chemicals and toxins, and all the basics that help us maintain solvency of immune function, metabolic function, and indirectly, and then directly, our outcome, our health, and that of our children, and that of their children, and so on, and so on, and so on. Well, I know this was longer, but those four podcasts really had a lot of information that I wanted to share, and I tried to put it in a form this time that was a little bit different with sort of the bullet point news to use ideas of what we can do now. So, that's about it. I'm a little tired of talking right now. Uh, my, my lips are a little dry, so I'm going to get a little bit of drink of water. And as always, I really appreciate your time. And um, I hope you have a fabulous year and, and day. And don't look back. Look forward. Look at what you can do now, tomorrow, and today to make changes for your better outcome health-wise, for your child's better outcome health-wise, and just for society in general. Just all of this stuff works great for everyone to, to look at it from what's the best way, the best foot forward. So as always, I'll leave you with this. Hug those kids. Have a great day. And now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and it is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship, and I appreciate your time. Have a great day.